Joining me today is Todd Myers. Todd is the director of the Center for the Environment at Washington Policy Center. He is one of the nation's leading experts on free market environmental policy. Todd is the author of the landmark 2011 book, Eco-Fads, How the Rise of Trendy Environmentalism is Harming the Environment, and was a Wall Street Journal expert panelist for energy and the environment. He has authored numerous studies on environmental issues, including five years of environmental policy, are we making a difference, promoting personal choice, incentives, and investment to cut greenhouse gases, and more. He formerly served on the executive team at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, and he is here to discuss his new book out last year, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Todd, how are you? I'm very good. It's very nice to be with you. I, the work of human progress is really important, and so it's nice to join you. Thank you so much for speaking to me. So what gave you the idea for this book? So you mentioned my previous book, EcoFed. So I've worked in environmental policy in Washington State for more than two decades. So you mentioned I worked at the State Department of Natural Resources on issues like spotted owls and old growth and forest fires. And now I sit on the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council. So I've worked on salmon issues. And um, in that time, um, while I worked for government and on government boards, I saw the limitations of what government could do and, and politicians and how their incentives were not aligned with actually helping the environment, but more aligned with making themselves look good. And so that was what my book EcoFads was about, is how politicians and the public um, too often fall for environmental fads um, that uh, make themselves feel better about their doing things to help the planet, but that they often don't work. And what's worse, is that the incentives are against politicians acknowledging that they failed. So what we do is, is that we then, we have bad policies that don't work and then we double down on those policies rather than switching. And what my new book, Time to Think Small is about, is about the opportunities to shift the power to help the environment from politicians to people. Um, and this, because we have so much small technology because the iPhone, uh, because of other the internet of things, we now have an opportunity to do that in a way that we didn't 10 years ago, or certainly 50 years ago, when we passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And yet, for too many people, our mind goes back to the 1970s, to those 1970s solutions, rather than 2020, 2023 solutions, um, where we have the technology to do uh, really amazing things to solve big problems. Everybody turns to climate change, but there are lots of other problems like ocean plastic, uh, protecting species around the globe, things like that. And people are using these small technologies to do really remarkable things and make um, a progress against uh, environmental challenges where frankly politicians um, and governments have failed. So let's go through the chapters one by one. Uh, you start out by explaining uh, why you believe small technology is the future of environmental stewardship. So why is it? Well, like I said, um, it, when our mind goes to, when people say, okay, here's an environmental problem, people tend to go to the 1970s, to the creation of the EPA, to the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act in the United States. And then around the world, there were a number of other similar sort of efforts in developing countries or in um, Western countries primarily. 
Um, and I understand why, right? I mean, we, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, people can debate about whether those were the right approaches, whether they were um, uh, you know, expensive. But one thing we did see is they worked. Um, our air is much water, our air is much cleaner, our water is much cleaner. Um, and at the time, there were few alternatives to that, to government intervention. You, like I said, you can argue about whether that was the appropriate government intervention, but to solve those problems, there was going to be need, uh, need to be some government intervention. That's really, um, things have really changed. Um, and not only in terms of technology, but the nature of the environmental problem has changed. And you don't have to ask me, you can actually ask the first director of um, the EPA, Bill Ruckelshaus, who actually passed away a couple of years ago, but he wrote a piece about 10 years ago saying that the solutions that worked in the 1970s aren't going to work today because the nature of the environmental problems that we have today are distributed. You can't go to single point sources, big outfalls into the water, big smokestacks into the air, the types of pollution, the types of problems that we have are lots of little inputs, lots of little impacts to forests, to habitat and things like that. And the way to solve those problems is with distributed solutions. Technology allows us to have those distributed solutions and make progress. Um, and it is more effective and government really can't do that. Government is not good at doing a million little things. Government is good at doing a few big things. Um, and so our mindset has to change, not because the opportunities are now there, but also because the nature of the problem is different. So why do you believe, uh, as your second chapter is titled, that small, nimble technologies are so powerful? Primarily because what technologies do in information technology, smartphones, the internet, the internet of things and things like that, they break down traditional uh, barriers that economists have recognized for years. So for instance, Ronald Coase talks about transaction costs, the transaction costs of coordinating efforts, um, both the information costs, things like that. And what, what technology now does is allows us to coordinate basically in a very frictionless way and get information that we never had access to. So I'll give you a, a great example. Um, <clears throat> So ocean plastic is a big problem. I mean, I think people, uh, all of us can agree, we don't want plastic in the ocean. It doesn't uh, degrade, it doesn't biodegrade, it doesn't photodegrade very well. And there are estimates that I think are exaggerated, um, but there was one estimate that said that there'll be more plastic in the ocean by weight than fish in 2050. Now, I think that's probably wrong. I think that's exaggerated, but even if it's half of that, even if it's a 10th of that, right, we don't want that. So how do you address that? Well, again, the problem is distributed. It's not in one location. It's little bits of plastic all over the world. And in fact, it's not in the United States. The United States um, uh, puts in about a fifth amount uh, of plastic into the ocean as, for example, Sri Lanka, which is a little tiny uh, island nation off of India. So how do you address that? So a group called Plastic Bank, what they did is that they hired people to pick up plastic that could wash into the water in developing countries, places like Indonesia, the Philippines, Brazil, Egypt. And then um, because people have phones, they could geolocate it, they would turn it into plastic bank in the collection centers. They would get paid on their phone because many of these people don't have bank accounts. And then plastic bank would take the plastic and sells it to SC Johnson. 
So when you buy a Windex bottle, it will say made with ocean bound plastic. And you can know uh, with fair certainty that the plastic came from uh, where you think it did because they actually have a map online where you can go and see where all of the plastic was picked up. Now, the technology involved in this is nothing very special, right? It's basically cell phones that are an internet, you know, on a web page and some data. And yet, with that very simple technology, because the costs of collaboration have gone down so low, they have been able to collect 3.1 billion plastic bottles that would have washed into the ocean and more than 150 million pounds of plastic. Now, that is not solving the problem. That is a start, but it is a tremendous start given how simple the technology is. And that is why I think technology is playing such a big role is because the costs of getting lots of people together and having aggregated impact are so low, you can now see efforts like Plastic Bank and what you just, it would have been very difficult to have that sort of effective effort 20 and 30 years ago. How can environmentalism, in your words, pay? Well, in this case, I think it's a, in the plastic bank, it's a perfect case, right? Because SC Johnson buys the uh, plastic um, and, uh, you know, they put the sticker on and SC Johnson, I think, has a, has a variety of motives. One of them certainly is they simply want to do good for the planet. But another one clearly is that they think that they get a market advantage from uh, putting that sticker on there. Um, you know, we saw the same thing with tuna. Right, all tuna cans now have the dolphin safe label. Uh, nobody is going to buy a tuna can that doesn't say dolphin safe. Um, and so having that label now becomes an opportunity to uh, improve your marketing. And in Western uh, countries where we are wealthy, we have the disposable income to pay a little bit extra for the environment. Um, and so technology allows those sorts of opportunities. Plastic Bank is just one example of that, of how um, environmental and conservation technology allow, <clears throat> align the incentives, align the incentives with the environment and with your financial well-being, um, rather than what I said we see before too often with government, where the incentives are misaligned, where looking good is more important than actually having results. When you align the incentives of personal financial benefit or just simply a desire to do good for the planet with environmental results, that's more sustainable, that's more effective. That's a great example. Are there any other examples mm -hmm. of private sector innovation in this space that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, let me give you one of my favorites, actually. My favorites change from time to time because I, I tell lots of stories in the book because Working as a free market environmentalist, the pushback that we get so often is, okay, that sounds nice in theory, Todd, but show me where it works. And now I can show you lots and lots of examples of where it is actually working on the ground. And so my book is full of these stories. Uh, and as I said, my favorite changes from time to time. My current favorite is um, called e-water services. And e-water services is a program that provides water to rural African villages by putting in pumps. Now, previously, what would happen is you would have an NGO or the United Nations or the government of a country going in and putting in a water pump to provide clean water. Um, without that pump, what typically happens is, is that the women of the village hike to the local river or stream, pick up the water, 
um, and then bring it back. The UN says that one kilometer, just over half a mile, is accessible water. So imagine hiking with you know, very, a lot of water, one kilometer, and having that be considered you know, accessible. So having a pump is very valuable because it'll, you don't have to spend all of that time, all that effort. Um, but what would happen with these government installed pumps is that they would um, break. So about 40% of pumps break after a year and a half. And then what happens? Well, unless the, you know, the government is gone, the NGO is gone often, the United Nations. So these pumps sit broken for months at a time. Um, so what e-water services um, did, it was, uh, there was some former UN employees who were tired of seeing broken water pumps. They created internet connected water pumps. And so it's a, just using Amazon Web Services because cell coverage is now everywhere. Uh, more than 90% of people in developing countries have some kind of phone. So what they would do was they would simply load their account on their phone with some money, about a penny a day for water. They would get a key fob. They would walk up to the pump and turn it on. It would measure the water. So you have a financial incentive to conserve, right? You can take what you need, but you don't want to waste. And then the other thing is because it charges, there is now a financial incentive to keep that pump working. And so when the pump breaks, because it's connected, they will be notified immediately. And a worker in the area for e-water services will go to that pump and fix it. And so pumps that were broken for months at a time are now fixed within a day. And so that just shows how financial incentives align with doing good for the environment and the alternative to getting clean water out of a pump is that, as I said, you have to go to a river or, or a stream and get it. Well, then what you have to do is you have to boil that water. So one of the major causes of deforestation in Africa is cutting down trees to boil water and cook food. And so in talking with Allison Wedgwood, who is the head of e-water services, she said that she would go to these areas and the, and the forest would just be denuded because they had, had to cut down all of the trees to boil the water. So if you have access to clean water, now you reduce the pressure for deforestation. So it's not just good economically, it's good for the environment. And I'll tell you an interesting postscript to this story, which is that in one of the countries that they are in, uh, the government is running for re-election. And one of their promises in this campaign has been free water for everyone. So they have actually gone into communities where e-water services has pumps and drilled water pump, uh, uh, drilled, created pumps and said, come and get your water for free and basically destroyed the business model of e-water services. So e-water is now pulling out of the country because they realize that the politicians are promising, you know, free resources. Well, that's a horrible way to um, manage resources, right? It, it doesn't uh, encourage conservation. But the other thing is, is what's going to happen when those pumps break? Who's going to be there? Will the government be there? The history says no. The history says that it, once again, those pumps will be broken for months at a time and you will get back into that bad old a cycle of where people don't have water, they have to go hike to get water, they have to cut down trees. So uh, that I think is a perfect example of how when you align financial incentives with resource conservation and management, you get good results. And when politicians come in and their interest is in looking good, rather than managing the resources, you get bad results. And we're seeing it in real time. 
that's a very vivid example. And there are a number of great examples in the book. Are there any others you'd like to highlight? Um, one of my favorite, another one of my favorites, and this is one actually the, the first one that I really sort of got me to sit up and pay attention to what was going on. So I used to be a computer programmer, so I like technology anyway. Um, and so it was sort of natural for me to combine my love of uh, technology and being a tech geek with uh, my environmental work. Um, but I had a friend who worked for a group called Paso Pacifico in Central America. And Paso Pacifico worked with uh, in Nicaragua and elsewhere to stop poaching of turtle eggs for endangered turtles. And they would actually go on the beaches and talk with the poachers themselves and recognize that they had an economic reason for going and getting those eggs. And so rather than telling the poachers, look, what you're doing is evil or wrong or things like that, they would, they would recognize, look, I get why you're doing this. And sometimes they would pay the poachers and work with them and other things like that. But what they realized was is that the problem was not so much the poachers. The poachers were doing it because they didn't have another good source of income. What they really wanted to do is recognize the network. Who was paying them? Who was buying the eggs, right? Where was the demand for the eggs coming from? So uh, one of the, the founder of Paso Pacifico was watching Breaking Bad. And in one episode of Breaking Bad, they tracked. They put a little tracker on. And she said, what if we could put a tracker in an egg, in a turtle egg, and watch where the poachers go, watch what the networks are. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because the technology is so small and easy, they simply got a 3D printer, they printed an egg that felt like an actual turtle egg, it's a little bit spongy, it's not like a chicken egg, and they put uh, a cell phone, a cell tracker in it, and they could track it. And so they tested it. And so it was actually a, um, a, a PhD student uh, named Helen Feezy um, from the UK. Um, actually tested it in Costa Rica and put all these eggs in turtle clutches. Because what happens is, is that the poachers come in at night, they quickly dig up the eggs, they grab them all and they put them into a bag. So if you put one, their egg that's covered in, you know, uh, sand and water and everything else, they're not going to notice. Um, so what they found was is that sure enough people were poaching their eggs and sometimes they would catch them like the first she said the first one that they found um uh, she got a ping on her phone that it was moving and she got really excited and she looked and it was in the middle of a river where a poacher had realized it and threw it into the river but in another case it went back and this is in costa rica all the way from the coast to the capital and then stopped in an alley behind a grocery store and they said, look, we, you clearly know what's going on there, right? They're selling the turtle eggs to some other people. So she says, there's no reason for them to be there. So that helped them identify the network rather than just targeting people who are probably impoverished who are just trying to make a living, trying to unravel the network. But again, think about how easy that is. You simply, you, you watch Breaking Bad, you get a 3D printer, you create it, um, and suddenly now you have this very powerful tool to unravel poaching rings. Switching gears a bit, how does diversity reduce car pollution? This is an interesting <laughs> part of the book. Yeah, so 
there is a lot of focus. Uh, so I live in Washington State, um, where um, we focus a lot on reducing CO2 emissions. We spent a lot of money and a lot of effort. Um, our governor actually ran for president, um, saying that he was going to reduce CO2 emissions. And the number one source of CO2 emissions in Washington State and a number of other uh, places is, is transportation. And so one of the things that you hear all the time is, is that what we need to do is we need more transit or we need high speed rail or things like that to get people out of their cars. But that's just simply not a suitable approach for lots of people. The reason that people are not riding transit, and you're especially seeing this since COVID, transit numbers are not returning. People are simply not getting back onto transit in, in most parts of the country, um, is, is that it is not a convenient way uh, for them to move to get where they want to go. Cars are much better. And in fact, um, oftentimes you will you will hear people say, yes, I want more transit so that there are fewer cars in front of me when I'm driving. <laughs> so they want to keep driving. They just want everybody else out of their way. So the way to address that, though, the way to reduce CO2 emissions is to give people a variety of options that do fit their needs um, so that it is easier to ride transit, is less expensive, and it's easier to do other things that are less carbon intensive. And one of my favorite examples is a company called Pantonium based in Canada. And what they created was um, what they call on-demand macro transit. So in a lot of places you have van pools and things like that, but they're fairly expensive because they carry a small number of people. But on-demand macro transit is basically like Uber for buses. And what you say is, okay, here's where I am and here's where I need to be and here's what time I need to be there. And what the system does is that it says, okay, here's a bus stop nearby, meet us there at this time. And it creates the route on the fly based on the demands that it has. And the reason that that's great is one, it creates predictability for people, right? It's very convenient for them. They know when to be there and they, they're guaranteed that they can get where they need to get at that time. But because it's not a static route, because it's a dynamically created route, they can shorten the routes. They don't have to go to all of the bus stops where there's nobody waiting. And so it allows people to get to their destination faster and it saves gas. So what the, the, comp, what the cities who have used this found is that ridership increased and costs decreased um, because people found it more convenient and the bus wasn't having to go places where um, uh, there was nobody waiting for them and waste gasoline. Um, so the per you know, passenger CO2 emissions went way down um, and people liked it. Um, so it, was, it combined, again, the environmental benefit of using less energy, emitting less CO2 while providing a better service. So that's just one example. You talked about diversity, but that's a, that's a perfect example of the kind of diverse ideas. And then you get programs that promote carpooling, that pay people to carpool. Um, you get, um, uh, you know, um, car sharing programs where you can rent a car um, for an hour. Um, all of those sorts of options. I had a, a friend in Seattle um, and she and her husband had one car. 
Um, and then when they needed another car, they would just um, go to a location where there was an on-demand car, um, unlock it with their phone, drive where they needed to drive, and then go back home. Um, and studies show that in cities where you have that on-demand vehicle access, um, the number of vehicles purchased in the, in the city goes down because a lot of people do exactly what my friend did, which is they say, look, I don't wanna spend money on a first car or a second car. I can use this service um, and it's more accessible, it's cheaper and it's environmentally friendly. Right, in DC where I am, I see all of these e-scooters and e-bikes yeah. uh, available everywhere. Just this diversity of transportation options offered. Uh, through the private sector. But uh, how does this goal of reducing car pollution also relate to the uh, sort of yes in my backyard movements uh, of deregulating zoning that would allow for a diversity and abundance of housing options? Yeah, that's right. So I think, you know, uh, it is difficult, you know, growth management and, and uh, trying to the, the zoning issue there is a sense that people have that they can plan um, how to make everything accessible so you can have you know everything walkable but that just doesn't you know that doesn't work very well in the real world and i can tell you in washington state where we have had very strict growth management laws um, i don't think that there is a single one of the growth management goals that it's actually meeting because it's it, you know actually planning accurately is very difficult um, so what is more, what is a better approach is to provide a diversity of options, um, both in terms of zoning and in terms of transportation. The other thing about providing a diversity of transportation options is that people that the, the radius that people um, uh, have for jobs is typically the extent is, is it's about one hour commute. That's that's about the farthest that people will go um, to commute to a job. And if you provide a diversity of transportation options that make it so that people can get a, a, a wider difference, expand the radius that they can get to within one hour, you expand their job options. Um, so that diversity, no matter what zoning system you have, if you can create a large number of jobs that are accessible to residential areas within one hour, using a diversity of transportation options. Again, you're not only providing better environmental alternatives, but you're improving their job prospects and their economic prospects. Well, why do you write that transparency and the blockchain make fish and chocolate better? <laughs> but not together. But not together. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> There is a great, uh, there's a TV show called Portlandia, if people have watched it, um, about Portland, Oregon, which is just south of where I live. Um, for people who watch it, they think it's um, a comedy. Um, I think it's more of a documentary, uh, given my experience in Portland, Oregon. And it's sort of about the crazy things that people in, in Portland do. And there's a, there's a, a sketch that they do where people are ordering at a restaurant, ordering some chicken. And they're asking, okay, is this organic? Is this Oregon organic? Is this Portland organic? And the waitress comes back and she brings the papers for the chicken. And she says, here's the chicken. Here's how he was raised. And his name is Colin. Um, and it's it's a joke, right? I mean, it's like you want to get to know uh, your chicken and how they were treated. 
And yet, we can now do that. And we can actually do more than that. Um, the blockchain, um, it is just sort of a fancy name for a transparent ledger. Many things that people talk about the blockchain actually don't need the blockchain. But the nice thing about blockchain is, is that it is transparent. It is hard to falsify. And when you are looking at supply chain, when you want to know that the chicken that was free range, that it was fed organic food, that it, you know had all of these attributes, had a nice happy life, you want to know the track that it got to your plate. And the blockchain is a good way to do that because it is difficult to falsify compared to just sort of internal databases, which might do the same thing, but you don't have the same uh, reliability. So in the case of fish, you want to make sure that you, the fish that you're purchasing, especially things like tuna, that others are that where, where the stocks are low and they're overfished, you want to know that it was caught sustainably. And so now you can you you can follow that fish and what they call it is from bait to plate. <laughs> um, so from the minute they bait the hook, catch the fish, bring it on board, you can actually track that and see, yes, the fish that I purchased is actually uh, was caught sustainably and wasn't caught illegally and things like that. Now, what's going to happen is, is that there are fish that you're not going to know, right? There's fish that are not going to have that tracing because the bad guys aren't going to provide that transparency and information. But in the same way that a dolphin safe tuna label works on tuna, you're not going to buy tuna that doesn't have the certification that it was dolphin safe uh, with, with tuna or other fish that you want to know that was caught sustainably and legally. We can now get that information. Um, to make sure that it was caught um, in ways that are environmentally friendly, um, that aren't causing overfishing and things like that. The same thing is true with chocolate. I actually bought a chocolate bar um, from uh, South America where it showed me exactly where the chocolate was and, and the process. And then it allowed, it gave me two, a little token that I could do one of two things. I could either use that token as a discount to buy more chocolate bars or I could turn in several of those tokens and plant another <clears throat> cocoa tree um, in the plantation in South America. Um, and it would show me literally exactly where that tree was going to be planted. And so this sort of transparency um, connects people to the environmental amenities that they want, to the farmers, to other things like that, to the fishers who are catching their fish and provides them the opportunity to purchase exactly the amenities that they, the environmental amenities that, that they want. <clears throat> so if you want your chicken to be named Colin, you can find a chicken named Colin. Um, so th this is limited, you know, not everybody is doing this, but there are lots of people working on these technologies. And in many cases, um, the, the sort of the beginnings of these efforts um, are out there if you look for them. That's fascinating. Are there any other uh, things related to the blockchain that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, one of the other challenges with the blockchain, and we talk with um, energy use um, and trying to calculate, you know, CO2 emissions or resource use and say, okay, is what I'm buying really what it claims to be? So one concern about 
um, environmentalism is a thing called greenwashing, right? That you claim uh, that you're doing something, but when people look at it closely, it's actually not providing the environmental benefits that they promise. And transparency, again, is part of that. But it's also important to businesses. You want to know, okay, am you know, what is my what are my energy costs? How where am I paying for energy? Where are we emitting CO2? Things like that. And if you can identify energy and other resource uses at every step of your supply chain, now you can start to make financial and management decisions based on that information. Um, again, aligning the financial incentives with environmental uh, benefits because, because it's so easy to collect the data now and put that in a transparent ledger that you can make decisions on um, pieces of information on your supply chain that you just simply never had the information for. So it's not simply good for people who want to buy, you know, sustainably caught fish. It's now good for businesses who want to make sure that they are eliminating waste in their supply chain, which also eliminates environmental impact. What uh, do you say that the Flint water crisis and Thomas Edison have in common? So the Flint water crisis, I think, is a perfect example of <clears throat> that the problem with relying on government is that we can't rely on it. And it's a good reason, it's a good example of why we need to shift power to the extent that we can. I'm not an anarchist, right? I recognize that government is going to have to play a role and sometimes is the most appropriate way to address some environmental problems. But too often, we ignore the opportunity to shift power um, to people. Um, and I think I, I'll just say this, I think one of the really corrosive parts about political environmentalism is that politicians have an incentive to tell people that they don't have any power, that only politicians can solve a problem. To, to sort of belittle and minimize the efforts of individuals. And you see this all the time where it's like, oh, these little efforts are cute, but they don't add up. Only I, as a politician, only I, as a government bureaucrat, can do these things. And I just think that's, I think that's wrong. I think it's inaccurate, but I also think it's morally wrong because I think, you know, tearing others down to build yourself up is not the way that we are going to um, make progress on not just environmental issues, but a variety of issues. And the Flint water crisis, I think, is a good example of that. So um, for those who aren't familiar with the details, Flint, Michigan was looking for a way to cut its water costs. They switched their water source. And what they didn't realize was the new water source was corrosive of the lead pipes. Um, there are anti-corrosive chemicals and other things you can put into the water. They didn't do it. They didn't realize that they needed to do it. And so what ended up happening was people in Flint, Michigan turned on their faucets and out came dirty water. Um, and then there was lead in the water that was uh, found. And for a long time, um, governments, uh, both at the state and federal level, um, denied that this was going on. In fact, um, early on in the Flint water crisis, um, somebody from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality told people that said, quote, anyone who is concerned about lead in the drinking water in Flint can relax. <laughs> so they were wrong. There was lead in the drinking water. And yet here is the State Department of Environmental Quality telling you, oh, don't worry about it. 
And then when finally they realized, okay, yes, there's a problem. How do we deal with this? The EPA was trying to understand what to do. And they had uh, some money that they could use to buy filters and other things for people in the community. Um, and they said, well, this, this, this money really isn't used dedicated for something like that, but we could probably stretch and make a justification for it. And so they were emailing back and forth and they ultimately decided not to do it. And one of the managers wrote an email that said uh, that we could do this, but quote, I don't know if Flint is the kind of community we want to go out on a limb for. So for those people who are relying on the EPA to take care of them, to make sure that their water was clean. And when they found out that the water wasn't clean, to help them get clean water, that was the response to the EPA. And when there were hearings about it, and the, and the regional director of the EPA was asked about this, she said that she thought EPA didn't do anything wrong. So <clears throat> the reason that you need to empower people and not just government is because in very serious situations like the Flint water crisis, government failed again and again, and at each opportunity that they had to do something to help the people, um, they fell down. Had you gotten filters, other things to individuals, so that they took power over making sure that their water was clean and that they were protected, the problem could have been solved much more rapidly and you could have had much smaller uh, impact on them. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a great example of why um, local control, individual power empowerment um, is the way to solve these environmental problems. So you asked the, the title is how does Flint and Thomas Edison, you can see the same thing on energy. So not too far from where Thomas Edison um, created his first power plant um, is the Brooklyn microgrid. So the Brooklyn microgrid is just an effort um, of people who have solar panels to be able to generate electricity and then sell it to each other. And initially microgrids are not, they're not the most efficient way to create energy, right? They're not, at this point, they're certainly not gonna create, um, compete financially with um, sort of big power plants. But uh, there's two things that are attractive people. One is when the power goes out, you now have an alternative, you have solar um, energy that can be shared. And second, uh, there's kind of a nice community aspect that some people like where you can buy solar from your neighbor and things like that. And because the technology exists where people can trade electricity amongst each other in this microgrid, um, you can act like a little utility. You have solar panels and you want to use your electricity. Uh, great. If the prices go up and you want to sell your electricity to your neighbors on a hot day and you're willing to, you know, um, sit outside in the heat and not use the electricity and make a little money, you can do that too. But what's remarkable is the technology and now allows individual people to essentially do what Thomas Edison did with his first power plant, which is generate and sell electricity. Um, but it is using technology to push power out to individuals rather than uh, to politicians and government. Could you describe the chapter? on enhancing our relationship with nature, our connection with nature. Yeah. So I, like I said, I've worked in environmental policy for about two decades. 
If you told me in college that I was going to work in environmental policy, I would have told you you were crazy because the people I knew in college who were interested in the environment looked weird and kind of smelled bad. So uh, this is not, working in environment was not something that, um, you know, I hiked a lot and was a nature lover. It, it, it was very interesting to me from a sort of a science and public policy standpoint. But what has happened is, is that over time, uh, the environment has really started to fascinate me and opportunities to connect with it um, now are all around us. And so now um, I really uh, enjoy it and I have a closer connection to sort of the environment. I'm a beekeeper. The reason, one of the reasons I'm a beekeeper is not uh, because I love honey. People think I'm a little strange to have a hobby where I get stung 10 times a year, but bees, honeybees are really fascinating. And so I have, I've found ways to have that connection and I really enjoy it. But I'm not a botanist, right? I'm very bad at identifying plants. Um, for a long time, I couldn't identify birds. But there are now technologies that can do that. So iNaturalist um, is an app um, that you can get. Um, and it's, there's a spinoff now called Seek, S-E-E-K. And what iNaturalist allows you to do is to take a picture of a plant. And then it would run that picture through its artificial intelligence because other people, lots of other people had put um, pictures of that plant in. The AI learned to recognize that plant. And so now when I take a picture of Oregon grape or something when I'm uh, hiking, it'll say, this is Oregon grape. Um, and now I don't have to be a botanist, right? I don't have to remember all of these things. I can identify them. And I remember the first time I used, I was very skeptical of it. And the first time I used it, I was hiking with some friends and we found a dead moth, this beautiful, I mean, a very large moth. We picked it up and I said, let me try this. And so I, I pulled out my app, iNaturalist, I took a picture of it and boom, it came up with the name of the moth. And it, I mean, it was, it was incredible. So that started to allow me to have a connection to nature to understand it in a deeper way um, than just sort of you know hiking and enjoying uh, natural beauty um, and that's i think that's really cool and this becomes not just you know a tool to connect to the environment but it it now the information that is put in there becomes a tool to provide opportunities for conservation i naturalist so many people have used iNaturalist and put data in there that now the data that they have, it's like, I think it is the largest database of wildlife sightings. Um, and um, numerous scientific studies have now been um, um, published using that data. eBird is another app um, that can sort of help you identify the birds that are in your yard. It knows what birds, it knows where you are because of the jeep you know because of the gps in your phone and knows what time of year it is and it knows what birds are in the area and so if you say here's where i saw the bird here's how big it is here's the colors it can give you these are the probably the birds that that you've seen so birders use ebird and so now there's all these millions of data points and in the central valley of california um, the nature conservancy wanted to um, see how it could create habitat for uh, migratory seabirds. And so what they found using the data was exactly the parcels of land where migratory seabirds um, passed through and they went to those rice farmers and they said, look, in January and February, how much would we have to pay you to create habitat on your property, flood your fields a little bit for these seabirds? And then negotiated a price, 
flooded their fields, created the habitat. They could use eBird now to go out and do sightings to make sure it was being used. And think about the opportunity. The way the Endangered Species Act works right now is if you have good habitat or you have species on your land, the government comes in and says, you can't use your land in, you know, in the way you want. It is, a, it is a lie. Now, habitat and endangered species are a liability. With what eBird did, endangered species and habitat is an asset because the Nature Conservancy could use that data collected by birders to show that that land had value and pay them. And it turns endangered species protection on its head because people want that connection to nature. People want to be, to see the birds, and then the data that they provide becomes a tool for positive conservation. Now this isn't in the book because it's a more recent development. At the time of recording this podcast, it's just a few days ago, but uh, given your knowledge of bees, I'm curious if uh, <laughs> you have any thoughts on the first vaccine apparently yeah. ever approved for honeybees, uh, protecting them against something called foul brood, which is apparently yeah. an, an aggressive bacterial disease that harms honeybees. This is really cool. Um, so um, it's interesting to call it a vaccine because the, the, the treatment is put in feed and then the bees mm -hmm. eat it and that's the way, it's basically an oral medicine. We do that with bees already. We, you know, when I have feed, I will put things in the feed to make them healthier. Technically that's not a, a vaccine, it's more like a, a vitamin or a nutrient or something like that, but it's the same sort of process. But American fowl brood is a particularly destructive um, disease and it's so hard to get rid of that if your hive dies of fowl brood or you suspect American fowl brood, there's also European fowl brood, which is not as bad. Um, we Americans like to do things, you know, extra on top of what the Europeans. So American fowl brood is very destructive. It's so destructive that if you, your hive dies or you have it, you need to burn all of your equipment because it is, it's very difficult to eradicate. So you can imagine if you're a commercial beekeeper, an American fowl brood breaks out and you have a thousand hives, you have to quickly quarantine them and then you're gonna destroy a lot of your equipment um, so that it doesn't spread. So it can become very expensive. Most people talk about um, hive death and the, you know, the percentage of hives that die every year. That's primarily due to something else called the Varroa mite, which is a little mite that attaches itself to bees and then weakens bees. It's not primarily because of American fowl brood, but American fowl brood is a very nasty illness. Um, and so when I saw that, I actually used to be president of my local beekeeping and I sent it to uh, a bunch of my beekeeping friends and I was like, this is really cool. Um, because it is so uh, destructive. Wow. Okay. So another great example of technology moving forward. Yeah. Um, and let history. me just add on that, which is, is that um, it's another good example of financial incentives of the free market mm -hmm. um, helping um, to protect a species. So but there's a lot of concern. You see all these articles about, oh, honeybees are dying. They're headed toward extinction. That's not true, that's exaggerated, but we do see higher hive mortality than we saw. It used to be about 15 to 20% of, of hives died over the course of a year. Now it can be 40 and 50%. 
But what you see is, is that the highest rates of hive mortality are among hobbyists, frankly, people like me, <laughs> um, who, you know, I, I am not as experienced. I don't, you know, go look at 100 hives a day like a commercial beekeeper does. Um, I don't spend a lot of money to keep them healthy. I, mean, I do want to keep them healthy because I care about my bees. Um, but I just don't have the skill and I don't have the incentives. The lowest rates of hive mortality, about 20%, very close to typical, are among commercial beekeepers. And why? Because they have a strong financial incentive to keep their hives safe. And so again, it's, you know, it's, I'm sort of a broken record on this, but I think we need those of us who believe in market incentives need to tell these stories of how aligning financial incentives with the environment is the best way to manage resources. And the fact actually is, is that um, the number of hives in the United States has rebounded um, and is close to a 20 year high precisely because commercial beekeepers have that financial incentive to keep their hives safe and uh, to uh, replace them when they die. That's fascinating. Now, you also have a chapter uh, exploring what's the downside of yeah. all of this. What do you uh, discuss in that chapter? So having been in government a long time, one of the things that I like to uh, try to um, avoid, uh, both in terms of government and in my own thinking is hubris, thinking that I've got it all figured out because we never do, of course. Um, so I dedicate a chapter to critiques um, that I have already heard or that I could come up with for the solutions. Um, I remember reading um, or The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin um, and, you know, in, in college, you read like some parts and I, um, um, I don't know, about 15 years ago, read the whole thing. And what I was really impressed by was that about two thirds of the book is actually um, dedicated to here are all the problems with my argument. And I just thought that was really excellent. You don't see that much, frankly, from scientists anymore who spend most of their time trying to figure out why they're wrong or showing why they could be wrong. And yet that is the, you know, the essence of the scientific process. So I wanted to do something similar. So I have a chapter on that. Obviously, one of the first critiques I get uh, is, okay, Todd, that's cute. Your book is called Time to Think Small, but the problems we face are big. And these small little things simply can't tackle the magnitude of the problems, the environmental problems we face. So that was why I started off talking about Plastic Bank to say, that a system that relies on really nothing more than a web page and cell phones can um, remove 3.1 billion plastic bottles from beaches that might have walked into uh, washed into the ocean. We can. The, the ability to aggregate our efforts is very large, but I understand um, that people are skeptical of that. But we just passed the 16th anniversary of the creation of the iPhone. 16 years is not actually that long. And we have gone in 16 years from the creation of the iPhone to where our number one complaint is we all spend too much damn time on our iPhones. Um, it has really changed things in a, in a remarkably short amount of time. Um, and um, Matt Ridley has a, um, a law that he calls Amara's Law um, that I talk about, which is, and what happens with new technologies is that there's all this promise, right? Oh, this is going to change the world. He's going to do amazing things. And, and then it kind of goes slow. The technology doesn't fulfill the promises. And he says, right about the point that people sort of give up on it and say, oh, this is never going to work out or do what we want. 
it actually accelerates and starts to exceed promises and starts to do things in ways that we never anticipated. And I think we have already seen that with technology, but there are lots of things. We talked about the blockchain and sustainable um, um, supply chains for fish and things like that. Um, you don't find those in many places. People are still developing them. And so the blockchain is now one of those things that when people mention it, a lot of eyes roll and they say, oh God, everybody's talking about the blockchain and it hasn't fulfilled the promises yet. So um, I think there's hope, but there's no doubt um, that for some problems, small solutions are not gonna add up, but they will, I think, exceed a lot of people's expectations. One of the other concerns that um, I hear uh, all the time more on the right is that this technology can be very invasive, um, that people can lose their privacy. One of the examples that I give is a smart thermostats and the ability of smart thermostats to save people energy, to move their energy use out of peak um, hours in the evening where energy is very expensive, electricity is very expensive. But what we have seen is, is that some people sign up for smart thermostat programs where they are paid when there is an energy crunch, um, when there is very high demand, when costs go up, um, utilities can sign them up to say, okay, we're going to turn your thermostat up or down, as the case may be, by a couple of degrees to save electricity. And we have seen a lot of complaints about that. Sometimes people sign up and then they don't realize that they have signed up for it. They're getting a financial reward, but they're but that feels very invasive for people to come in essentially and turn your thermostat up or down. And so I understand that. I don't like that invasiveness either. Um, but one of the things that I do remind people is, is that, especially in the case with electricity, is that government can already do that. And they can turn out your lights. We can have a blackout. In California, they were facing a, a, you know, an energy shortage last year. Um, and then there were threatened blackouts. And what California did was they sent out a text to residential customers and said, conserve where you can. And people turned down their uh, electricity use so much um, that it avoided the blackouts and the amount uh, of reduction was equivalent to the amount of the batter, all the batteries that were being used at that moment in California, just with a simple text. But that's a less invasive way to do that. But had they not done that or had they not used, you know, smart thermostats and, and adjusted, um, the government would have turned out your power. So I don't like the invasiveness, but given a choice between blackouts and turning my thermostat up or down two degrees, I will turn. I will choose the thermostat. But I don't dismiss that concern. It is a real concern, in my understanding. And another difference there seems to be the voluntary nature of it, right? Because with the private companies, you're opting in. You might not realize you've opted in, but you can opt out uh, once right. you do realize that. Whereas with the government, <laughs> unless you move out of California to a different state, you don't really have an option there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, and in a lot of places in this country, the way that electricity is managed, a lot of the debates that you hear about wind and solar and other things like that um, is about what government policy we should adopt. And so like when we had the Texas energy crisis a few years ago, the debate was about do we need more reliable sources of energy like natural gas and coal, or do we need more renewable sources of energy? It's all on the supply side. Where's the consumer? The consumer is left out of the discussion. People are assumed to be essentially powerless. 
And I just think that that's wrong. We need to change that. Consumers need to get in the game. You need to have more power and they can. We have the technology, not just through smart thermostats, but a variety of other things to give consumers the information and the ability to control um, how they use electricity, control their prices, control what they pay. Um, and then if they wanna buy you know, 100% renewable, they can do that too. But our mindset, when you hear all these debates about electricity, it is, it, it is about which, plan, which government plan is better, <laughs> reliability or renewables. Um, and I just think that that leaves you know, probably the most important person out of it, which is the consumer. What do you mean by democratizing environmentalism, which I think relates to what you were just saying? Uh, very much what I just said, which is that our mindset on the environment and on energy and a lot of these things is stuck in the 1970s or even before that. Um, our system on electricity, our system of tariffs was essentially created in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it all assumes that consumers don't have enough information. Um, to make rational decisions about electricity, a more you know, uh, you know, quick decisions about electricity. But we need to change that. If I asked you or anybody else, what's the cost of a price of gallon of gas? They could probably tell me within maybe five cents a gallon, right? Because it is everywhere uh, on every street corner. But if I asked, what is the price of a kilowatt hour? Very few people could tell me what the price of a kilowatt hour is, despite the fact that I can tell you basically instantaneously um, what it is um, in your area, what the spot prices are at the very least. Um, but that information is not available. And because that information um, is not readily available and because our tariffs um, and the system is not, doesn't provide an incentive for people to pay attention to that, we, we simply don't have the information that's necessary. Democratizing environmentalism means giving people the information they need to make better decisions for themselves and for the environment, and not just trusting politicians to take care of it for us. When we outsource the environment to politicians, um, we, we lose that connection to the environment, we lose that connection to results, um, I think, and that has been very destructive in a lot of areas, and the result is, is that a lot of the environmental issues that people care about are not being solved and people don't know why, because they have outsourced uh, the concern to others. Um, and there is, um, if anybody has read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, I actually think this is in the, the second book, but there's a, a very funny example of where um, they were talking about um, trying to make something invisible and they found that it was too difficult to make something invisible but what they could do was make something somebody else's problem. And by making it somebody else's problem, it was as good as invisible. <laughs> and that I think is what we have done with a lot of environmental issues, is we have made them somebody else's problem. We have said that politicians will solve this so I don't have to, or I don't have to worry about it. And the result is by doing that, we've made those problems invisible to ourselves and the policies haven't worked. We need to make those policies and to make those issues transparent to people and give people empower them to deal with them so that we're not outsourcing important issues to politicians um, and the result is we don't get the results we want i think that's a great note to end on thank you so much for speaking to me and again the book is time to think small 
how nimble environmental technologies can solve the planet's biggest problems. Please check it out.